Um, Judy, go ahead and start that video, please. Actually, show me the, the uh, is the sermon graphic up there? All right, that's fine. Just let the video go. This is uh, a little experiment that uh, some guys did. Oop, I need sound on that video. Okay, if you can just turn it down to about half that for me for a minute. There we go. These are metronomes. 32 of them. 32 metronomes. Now, what's interesting about them is you can see it's chaotic. They were all started uh, at a different, same tempo, but at a different time. So they're all off. Now, I've used a couple of examples of unity before. Uh, once I used an example of a bunch of pianos being tuned to one tuning fork. All those pianos are going to sound the same uh, because of that one tuning fork. If you try to tune a piano to a piano to a piano to a piano, eventually you're going to drop off. But if you tune all the pianos to one tuning fork, they're all going to sound the same. They're going to be in unity. Uh, use an example of an orchestra. An orchestra, a symphonic orchestra, whatever, they tune off of, usually, Ethan, correct me if I'm wrong. Uh, Justin, correct me if I'm wrong. He's, he's up there. Okay. Just nod in the booth, Ethan. Uh, they usually tune off of the principal violinist. One instrument, and they all tune off of that one instrument. They don't tune off of each other. Well, this morning, the example is these metronomes. Now, I hope most of you are watching the video and listening to me. Nobody touched them. You remember the chaos, right? Now, you've got one little off fella over here. Well, I'll say girl because it's pink, and I believe in, in gender distinction. It, it's off, but, oh, it's, it's, it knows it's off. It's, it's, it's figuring it out. Oh, yep. There we go. Now, I don't know how much is left. I think it's probably about 45 seconds or so. By the time the video ends, and we're just going to let it go. By the time it ends, those metronomes will be in perfect sync. Uh, there are all sorts of questions. Oh, that's, how did that happen? That's, that's not real. It's, it's fake because it's Internet. And then the guys that over at Mythbusters on the Discovery Channel, they proved that it was true. Chaos. Unified. And if you let it go long enough, uh, they will be in perfect sync. I thought it would be over by now. It's getting there. Oh, yeah, just a few more seconds. Now, you can go ahead and end it. Go ahead to the slides. Judy, thank you.
But that was better than the chaos, right? Now, what's, what's the deal? What's the, uh, what's the, what was going on here? The table, you may have noticed, the, the foundation that it was on moved. And over time, it was slight. And when they were all doing different things, that table did all sorts of strange movements. So you couldn't quite see it unless you were, I mean, looking really close. But over time, that table, because it moved, it forced all those metronomes into synchronicity. And, over, and then once they were all synchronized, that table moved perfectly in tune or in beat, in rhythm with those metronomes. Those metronomes were able to match each other because of their different colors? No. Uh, because they all started at the same place? No. Uh, because they were set exactly right or uh, exactly the same? No. But because of their shared foundation. That's what caused those metronomes to end up being in unity. Now, unlike us, I'm, I'm sorry, I'm going to be turning around a lot because, like I said, our back projector is out, so I'm going to be making sure uh, uh, that I'm keeping up with the slides here. Uh, unlike the metronomes, though, our foundation is solid. Our foundation doesn't move like the metronome foundation does, uh, did, but, but stay with me on this analogy. We unify as a church because of our foundation, because of uh, on whom we are standing, on whom we are built. We are built on Jesus Christ, and we must sink to the head of this church, who is Jesus. That is what we do. If we are on a, a different foundation, or if we are on a, a foundation that uh, does not uh, allow us to sync with each other, we have chaos like we had at the beginning of that video. We're going to see in this passage today, Acts chapter 4, verses 32 through 37, we're going to see that a great church, because that's our title today, a great church, a great church will be unified around the mission and around mutual care. That is what we see in verses 32 through 37. And the first church was a great church. Now, how long does it take for them to have problems? Well, the next chapter. Yeah, not long at all. Uh, if we look at the timeline, we don't know exactly when the end of chapter 4 is taking place, but we know Peter's sermon was at Pentecost, and Pentecost was about 10 days after Jesus ascended into heaven, and Jesus uh, walked on the earth about 40 days after he resurrected. So we are two, three months away from the resurrection is all. And chapter 5 begins with a major issue in the church. And then we see 20 years later, uh, 30 years later, Paul begins writing these letters. Actually, probably 17 to 20 years later, he begins writing these letters about pro to, to address problems in churches. So, was it perfect? No. But it was a great church. Let's read about, chapter, uh, about the church. Acts 4, verses 32 and 30, 337. 
Now the entire group of those who believed were of one heart and mind, and no one claimed that any of his possessions was his own, but instead they held everything in common. With great power the apostles were giving testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was on all of them. For there was not a needy person among them, because all those who owned lands or houses sold them, brought the proceeds of what was sold, and laid them at the apostles' feet. This was then distributed to each person as had any need. Joseph, a Levite from Cyprus by birth, the one the Gentiles called Barnabas, which is translated son of encouragement, sold a field he owned, brought the money, and laid it at the apostles' feet. If you don't have a Bible this morning, I encourage you to take one out of the pew rack in front of you and uh, turn to Acts. If you need somebody to help you get there, go for it. It's no big deal, but you're going to get a lot more out of this this morning if you follow along in Scripture with me. So we see language here that, that Luke has already used in Acts. He used it in Acts chapter 2 to talk about the, the coming together of the church, to talk about the, the unity that they had, the generosity, but he's recapping again. If, if they say it a bunch of times this quickly, then it's important. It's in the Bible, so if they said it once, it's important. But if they repeat it repeatedly... That was redundantly redundant, wasn't it? Uh, if they repeat it repeatedly, then we, we really must get, oh, okay, Luke is trying to tell us something here, and we need to understand it. There are five greats I see in this passage, and that's how we're going to break it down. Uh, a great church broken down uh, in five great ways. The first, the first great of this passage is that we see is great unity. We see that in the first part of Acts 4, 32, uh, 32a, we would call it. Now the entire group of those who believed were of one heart and mind. Look at that. In the entire group, all of them, every one of them. Now let's, let's think about what entire group means here. We're talking about thousands of people at this point because if we go back to the end of Peter's message at the end of chapter 2 and we see his invitation, which was our Sunday school lesson for some of our classes this morning, we see his invitation in uh, 37 through uh, 42. We see in verse 41 of chapter 2, So those who accepted his message were baptized in that day. About 3,000 people were added to them. And then when we skip to go next to chapter 3 where he preaches in the colonnade, uh, you, we see that, uh, let me find it. Well, anyway, we see thousands more. I was going to give you the exact verse and uh, I just completely lost it. When they got arrested, they, oh, here we go, it was chapter 4. But many of those who heard the message believed, and the number of men came to about 5,000. So we've added 3,000 the day of Pentecost. few days, few weeks, whatever, later, we add another 5,000 to them. So we've got about a church in Jerusalem of about 8,000 people. And if you go back to chapter 2 and you read about who got saved, you see uh, quite an eclectic group. He, he lists off the people uh, that were 
that were there, the ones who heard in their own languages, Parthians, Medes, Elamites, those who live in Mesopotamia, in Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya near Cyrene, visitors from Rome, both Jews and converts, Cretans and Arabs. They all heard in their language. And if Paul's going to give us a, a, a list of the nations there, we can safely assume not only did someone from each of those groups hear, but someone from each of those groups believed. And the church is a multi-ethnic, multicultural, multilingual church of over 8,000 people within just a, a couple of months of the resurrection of Jesus. And they are unified. They are of one heart and one, one mind, the Bible tells us. That one heart, that unity of heart. That's emotional unity. It's a connection in their deepest part. It's, it's, it's what they feel. It's, it is a, 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 a connection that, that comes from within, that, that binds them. It, it's not intellectual assent. It's not, I'm a part of the group, great, I signed my form, uh, I paid my dues, but you know what, I'm not, you know... I did it for prestige or something like No, this is, they are connected at the heart level. They love each other. And we're going to see how that translates, how that works out in real life toward the end here. But it is a connection where they truly care, truly love each other. Unity of heart. Luke says they also have a unity of soul. This is that intellectual unity, but not just intellectual assent, not just, yeah, I'm a part of this group, but they have the same thoughts. They have the same beliefs. They have the same plans. They, they come together with one mind. And where does that mind come from? Well, Paul will tell us later to have the mind of Christ. And that's what we see in a great church. They can have unity of heart. They can have unity of mind because their foundation is the same. Their foundation is Jesus Christ. Now, this is not unity. This is not uniformity. That is not the word that was used here. Not uniformity, unity. This is unity among differences. The metronomes looked different in a lot of ways. They were different colors. They, they, they kind of give us that idea of non-uniformity, but there was unity. We will rarely all be uniform. As a matter of fact, we never will be because we all come from different generations. We have different backgrounds, different paths got us here. So we are always going to be different. We will never be uniform, but we can have unity. It is actually probably a bad thing to ask for uniformity in a church. Kent Hughes, uh, who uh, wrote a commentary on Acts, said this. He said, this does not mean believers saw everything eye to eye. It is wrong to suppose, as sadly some do, that when believers dwell in unity, they will carry the same Bible, they will read the same books, and he means carry the same Bible translation, not like we use different scriptures. Read the same books, promote the same styles, educate the ch their children the same way, have the same likes and dislikes, that they will become Christian clones. The fact is, the insistence that others be just like us is one of the most disunifying mindsets a church can have because it, ins because it instills a judgmental 
inflexibility that hurls people away from the church with lethal force. One of the wonders of Christ is that he honors our individuality while bringing us into unity. There's no certain way you have to be to come to church. There's no certain political party you have to vote for to be a part of the church. There's no belief about homeschool versus public school, belief about vaccination versus not vaccination, no belief you have to have about Whataburger versus In-N-Out. That works better in Texas, sorry. Um, No belief about uh, jambalaya with tomatoes in it or jambalaya without tomatoes in it and without um, is correct, by the way. Uh, there, you know, there, there, which is better, slap your mama or Tony Sacheray? See, it, it, there are things we can disagree about, important things, and still be unified as a church. Because our unity, this great unity that the church has, is Christ-centered and it is internal unity. It's not man-centered, it's not idea-centered, it's not party-centered, it's not uh, food-centered, it's not dress-centered, it's not financially-centered, it's not socially-centered, it is Christ-centered, and it is invisible, it is internal. It's something that we can't see, but we know is, if we are standing on the same foundation, that foundation of Jesus Christ. That's the first great we see in Acts 4, the end of Acts 4. The second great that we see is great power. We're going to skip the second part of verse 32 for a moment and jump to the first part of 33 where Luke says, with great power the apostles were giving testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. Y'all, where did that power come from? What was the power? The power was the testimony. That was the power. The apostles had no power in and of themselves. They didn't preach this message, and, they, and everybody thought, wow, these are great speakers. They must have gone to uh, a good elocution class. Oh, turns out they are very influential. Must have been a Dale Carnegie, how to win friends and influence people. There was none of that business going on. As a matter of fact, the Sanhedrin recognized uh, these are hicks from Galilee. These are just fishermen. But you know what we know? They've been with Jesus. We can tell that. They weren't educated. They weren't ready for the job. Yet the testimony was the power. They had great power when they gave testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. That is the Holy Spirit working within the members of the church. The Holy Spirit ignites instigates and initiates the power of the gospel in us. It sets the fire within us. It lights that fuse. Now, this is maybe an, an apt analogy because the word power here is uh, where we get the word dynamite from. It is dunamis. It is, uh, it is an explosive word. The Holy Spirit ignites that fuse. The, the Holy Spirit instigates and prods us. The fuse is lit. Get ready for the explosion. Get where you need to be. This week, some of you who don't live in the city limits and some of you who do but don't follow the law uh, will set off fireworks And you will light that fuse. And if you buy the big ones that shoot way up in the air, make the big explosion, you're going to ignite 
and then you're going to initiate the response to that ignition. And if you're smart, the initiated response is to move away. Well, the Holy Spirit ignites, lights that fuse, and initiates the response. And our initiated response is not to move away from the explosion, but to move with the explosion and take that power to those who need the, the gospel. It instigates it. It initiates it. The, gospel, the, the Holy Spirit is what moves us to want to do it. And that is what we see here great power at the end uh, when in the church at this time but we also can't just look at this passage and see it in isolation we have to remember what we've already learned we remember the prayer for boldness just a few verses up in in chapter four we we see that prayer empowered their work there is no successful successful mission of the church without god's intervention if we do anything without the power of the Holy Spirit, we will fail. Oh, we may be able to put some sort of successful numbers on paper, but that is not what we're called to do. We may increase attendance, we may increase giving, but if we're not increasing discipleship, we are a failure as a church. And so we see that prayer empowered that work. They were dependent on God for that power, for that boldness. And now, Lord, consider their threats and grant that your servants may speak your word with boldness. And when they prayed, God showed up. And we see that unity empowered the work. We see it in chapter 2, they were unified, they came together, they were of one heart and mind. We see here in chapter 4 that they were unified, one uh, heart, one soul. There is no successful mission of a divided, fighting church, ever, ever. If we are not unified, we will fail. If we are not unified, we will see 15 years of decline. If we are not unified, if we are fighting and gossiping and backstabbing and backbiting, we will not be a, success, a successful church. We see that the churches later on begin to lose their witness because of their sinfulness. Why do we think we're different? We will not be successful without prayer and without unity. We will not have the power of the Holy Spirit, that great power until we pray and we unify. The third great that we see is great grace. Second half of verse 33 it says, And great grace was on all of them. What's our simple definition of grace? Grace is getting what we don't deserve. We have two definitions of some pretty deep theological, biblical words, mercy and grace. Mercy is not getting what we do deserve. Grace is getting what we don't deserve. See, the people at this time knew they did not deserve the salvation. Remember who this is pulled from. Remember Peter's two sermons that we have so far. In both sermons, he told the people who were listening, you were the ones who crucified the Messiah. You. Not just your sin, that is our responsibility. That is, that's on us, too. These people's sin certainly crucified Jesus, but they were the ones that stood in the courtyard and hollered, Crucify Him! 
How much more responsible can you be? And Jesus forgave them. They knew they did not deserve that grace. And they knew that that was something they wanted to brag about. Jesus forgave me. It's as if I drove the nails, and yet he still forgave me. So that's where they begin with grace. They understand that they don't deserve what they've gotten. But they also understand that it goes beyond just their salvation. It gets to what they are praying for right now. It was by God's grace that their prayer was answered. The prayer for boldness, just a few verses up, where God shook the room that they were staying in. And gave them power to share the gospel. They knew that was by God's grace. He didn't have to do it. Their prayer did not manipulate God. He didn't, they didn't make a bargain with God. It wasn't as if he were suddenly required to do that because they used the, the correct words. It was by his grace that their prayer was answered. It was by God's grace that they were empowered to share the gospel, to share the testimony of the resurrection of Jesus. That was him doing what he did not have to do, but he said he would. It was Him empowering them. It was His grace. It was by God's grace that this non-uniform church of thousands of people, of different races, of different cultures, of different languages could come together in unity. That was God's grace on that church. That was God's grace in their lives. That was God doing something that is not expected, nor is it deserved. And yet God pours it out regularly on his churches. And once the people realized, it's God's grace that saved me, it's God's grace that answered the prayer, it's God's grace that empowered us to share the message, it was God's grace that empowered us to unify around our Savior, they wanted and it did, that grace flowed out of them to each other, and everyone else. Jesus made sure we understood that, that the grace we receive is to immediately flow to everyone around us. When he told the, the story, the parable of the forgiven servant, who was also the unforgiving servant, owed a huge debt, it was forgiven. Oh, thank you, that was wonderful. He turns around and demands an infinite, near infinitely smaller debt from someone, and when he couldn't pay it, throws him in prison. He did not take the grace, the undeserved response that he had received, and then transfer that to someone else. Far too often, we do the same thing. We experience salvation, we experience grace from God, and we do not transfer and translate that to someone else who needs it from us. It was a great grace in that church. Thirdly, it was great care. Jump back up to the second half of 32. I think I say it has 32A on there. It should be 32B. And then 34 and 35. No one claimed that any of his possessions was his own, but instead they held everything in common. For there was not a needy person among them, because all those who owned lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold, and laid them at the apostles' feet. This was then distributed to each person as any had need. What we see here is more than generosity. 
but it is certainly not less than generosity. There's more here at play than just, okay, I've got money, I've got lands, I've got whatever, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to sell it, I'm going to give that to the church. Here we have, beyond generosity, love and concern for each other. Love and concern that says, not what communism says, this isn't communism, yes, this is a bit of a commune, though they didn't live together, uh, they, they held everything in common, commune, but it, it's not communism the way we see it. Communism would say, what is yours is everyone's. That is not what Christianity says. That is not what we see from a great church. What we see from a great church is, what is mine is yours. Do you see the difference? Do you hear the difference on, on emphasis? It's, it's not an external authority telling you nobody has anything, everybody has everything. This is a Holy Spirit response in the individual saying, you know what, what's mine is yours. I give it to you freely, not by compulsion other than the compulsion of the Holy Spirit. And then what we see as we move through here, this passage and later on, is that there was a particular... Uh, um, Oh, this wasn't a one-time thing, but the intensity level of this selling and giving was greater here than was necessary later on. Because as we read Acts and we read of a famine that was in the area, they begin to not be able to take care of each other anymore. And other churches from uh, Mesopotamia and other uh, Macedonia, rather, and other places begin to send money as famine relief. You see all the churches doing the same thing, working for one thing, working for the good and the love and the concern for each other. This is real, tangible, physical care in the church. It, it says, the, the, the phrasing here is that no one lacked. No one claimed that any possessions was his own. There was not a needy person among them. Uh, that literally means no one lacked. We, we see this as a as ne- an as-needed response. As someone needed, someone else stepped up. There, and, and there was no expectation of return. And, and this wasn't just, again, part of it was, I got land, I'm selling it here, do what you need to with the money. Do what you feel God leads you to do with the money. It wasn't just that. It was also, oh, uh, oh, 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 Johnny over here needs help. Well, let's, I've got, I got something I can sell. We can help him. We can take care of this. It was a both and thing going on here. Real, tangible, physical care. But its source was real, active, spiritual care. Remember, they're in one accord. Remember, they are in unity. Remember that back in chapter 2, they devoted themselves, uh, let me find it, themselves to the apostles' teaching, to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. Thank you. Their, their, their physical response, their, their uh, 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 financial response was a result of what was going on in their hearts toward each other already. 
They were putting into practice what Paul had to remind the, Gal- the, the churches in Galatia of in Galatians chapter 6, verse 2, where he, where he said, carry one another's burdens. That passage is talking about carrying spiritual burdens. But as we carry spiritual burdens, we begin to see our eyes are opened, our hearts are in tune to the people's physical burdens, physical needs, and a true spiritual burden will always, always, always lead to a help with a physical burden. If it doesn't, well, in one place we're told uh, what, I'm going to paraphrase, what kind of sinner are you if you see somebody in need and you have the means to help them but you don't? Because it begins with a spiritual concern and leads to a physical concern, uh, meeting the physical concern. And then lastly, we see at the end of this passage a great example. So we've got a great unity, we have great power, great grace, great care. Luke is setting us up then in uh, this passage to show us how that can be wrapped up just in one individual. Now imagine thousands of them just like Barnabas. Verses 36 and 37, Joseph, a Levite from Cyprus by birth, and the one the apostles called Barnabas, which is translated son of encouragement, sold a field he owned, brought the money, and laid it at the apostles' feet. Luke loves to do this. He loves to introduce a character, a person, briefly, that he's going to flesh out over time throughout the passage of, uh, throughout the, the book of Acts. Uh, he, he does it with Paul, Saul. I mean, he, he introduces him as Saul tells of his conversion a little bit here, a little bit there, until finally by the end of Acts, Paul is the centerpiece of, of, the, of the story. He does that with Barnabas here. He introduces him. Barnabas is going to have incredible influence throughout the book of Acts. As a matter of fact, Barnabas will be a main reason the church will function correctly and properly throughout the book of Acts. We see him responding as the encourager often in bad situations and in good situations. Paul is going to talk about Barnabas in Galatians when there was an issue between Paul and Peter. And he, he, he uh, explains how grievous the issue with Peter is by saying even Barnabas was almost coerced into agreeing with Peter. Even Barnabas was almost swayed. Listen to that phrase. Even Barnabas almost fell into that sin. That's how grievous it was. That is how high the esteem for Barnabas was in the early church. Luke introduces introduces him here, gets us ready for his actions later on. But we see a great action right now. He sells his land don't know if it was in Cyprus or if it was in Jerusalem or where. It doesn't matter. He sold this land. He, he brought the money and he laid it at the apostles' feet. There were no strings attached to his gift. There was no, well, this is the way it's got to be used if you're going to use it. Y'all, I, I'm going to use a previous example. Uh, in, in Nixon... There was a lady who uh, died years before I got there and left some money with the, the Baptist Foundation, and we got the, the dividends quarterly. It was $67 and some change every quarter. She designated in her will that that money would go to mission friends. 
Only problem with that was that mission friends had ended long before I got there. We no longer had mission friends. And yet, for years to come still, that $67 and I think 56 cents or something like that had to be spent on mission friends, a non-existent ministry. Now, uh, what we did was we used it on children's ministry because that's the way it worked. But see, there were strings attached to that gift that made it difficult for that church to use that money. I mean, we had to have a business meeting and discuss it and all, okay, this is what we're going to do because this is what, because it's, it's not what it's given to doesn't exist anymore. That's the difficulty when we give and say, but this is what it has to be used for. Because that might be fine this week or this month or this year, but what about next year? What about when the, the, the culture changes? What about when the ministry changes? What about when the, uh, uh, the methods or the programs change because the, uh, the population around us changes? Then we have issues. Look at Barnabas. He trusted the money to those God had called to leadership and said, here, use it. I, I don't know... Uh, how closely you're keeping up with Southern Baptist Convention life. As you know, I keep a very close eye on it, especially with my seminary, Southwestern. Uh, this week, some major, major donors, a group of them in Houston, probably some 20 or so, wrote a letter to Southwestern Seminary's trustees. I won't get into all the details, but you may have heard me talk about the president being fired, uh, the seminary for a number of issues, much of which was brought to light on the floor of the convention a few weeks ago in Dallas. Um, these, these, uh, uh, these, these donors are demanding a, a tribunal, uh, so to speak, to investigate the executive committee of the board of trustees. I know this is a lot of jargon for you. I am making a point, I promise. Um, we have in Baptist life certain ways of doing things. Uh, anybody familiar with that? Can I get an amen? Uh, we have polity. Uh, we have a way we are governed. Our churches are governed generally by, in, in Southern Baptist life similarly across the board. Our convention is governed in the same way. You, we, the churches, control the seminaries. We control the Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission. We control the International Mission Board. All those things you're learning about these couple of months in those flyers that are in your bulletin that comes down to the messengers to the Southern Baptist Convention. We are the ones that make those decisions. So things have been put into place to uh, checks and balances to make sure that everything was done correctly. But these people are saying, because we have given millions, this is what their letter states, because we have given millions and because our future giving will most likely be in the tens of millions, we are demanding that the way everything is set up by laws uh, of, of the convention and of the South, Southwestern be done away with so that we can get what we want and if we don't, we're pulling our money. My response, keep your money. That's fine. If you don't want to give to something because you don't believe in it, keep it. I've said that before here in talking about giving. If you can't give to our church because you don't agree with things that are going on, then I encourage you to find and be a part of a church body that you can give to. 
Because that's, that's a spiritual issue on a lot of levels. Well, if they can't give this money because they're going to, well, it's really extortion. You, if you don't do this, I'm not doing this for you. Uh, it, it, then, then give that money elsewhere because God's not concerned about your tens of millions. God's not concerned about anybody in here, uh, me included, giving. He's got all the money he needs. What he wants is our obedience. What he wants is our sacrifice. What he wants is for us to give as he leads. And this isn't a message on giving other than this issue this week is going on in our convention. And yet the scripture speaks clearly that the people gave and they put no strings. They said, this is for the Lord. And this is where it stops. We have here a great church. Ignatius spoke of the church. He was actually speaking of the church in Rome at the time. Uh, this was very early on. But it applies to the church here, uh, the, the, the first church here in Jerusalem. Ignatius said it was a church worthy of God, worthy of honor, worthy of congratulation, worthy of praise, worthy of success, worthy in purity, preeminent in love, walking in the law of Christ, and bearing the Father's name. That is how we could describe the first church. We saw that they were uh, committed to the mission and to mutual care. We, we talked about that at the beginning. My question today, church, is are we? Are we committed to both the mission and to mutual care here? We, we see in this early church, in, in the first church, that they didn't ignore one for the other. My question for us church is, do we ignore one for the other? Do we sacrifice the mission for mutual care? Or do we sacrifice mutual care so we can do the mission? It's not a choice that we get to make. It is both and that we must do. And then as we get to the end of the passage, we see that Barnabas exhibited and led out on both the mission and mutual care. We're gonna, he was a missionary. We're going to get to see things he did as we work through Acts. My question for you this morning, church, is who will be our Barnabas? There wasn't just one Barnabas. There were many Barnabases. Barnabai bunch of them. Throughout the church, throughout history, Barnabas has shown up again and again. There's not just one of us in a congregation of 230 people. It, there are many who will step up, who should step up, who can step up, who are being called to step up and be a Barnabas. Who will be our Barnabas? Kent Hughes again said, what about the church today? We build great buildings, but do we build great people? We may have well-oiled machinery and programs that are the envy of others, but how do we compare with the early church? Remember, that's what we're doing. We're looking at the early church and saying, how do we compare? When the church is great, there is a, gener uh, there is a greatness in unity. As believers' hearts beat together like those metronomes, click, 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 as believers' hearts beat together in spiritual oneness, their fellowship of soul puts their common focus upon Christ. And when the world sees such great unity, it is impacted by the grace flowing from the church. Great grace. There is also great 
power. People come to believe because they see resurrection life in the church. And when the church is like this, there is great care as its people expend their lives to help one another. How beautiful, Kent Hughes ends his paragraph saying, where is our great example in our church right now? Is God calling you to be that great example? We see in the early church, their great salvation defined them. Does our great salvation define us as a church? It should. And maybe you've never experienced that great salvation. And maybe that's a bit of a foreign concept to you, foreign term. Great salvation begins with the fact that God is holy and just, that he will punish sin he will judge sin. It is a guaranteed, it is a fact. It is a guarantee and it is a fact. But there is a great need among us. That's, that's the great God. There is a great need in that we are willfully sinful and fallen. We are destined for everlasting punishment, torment, and judgment. There is a great Savior great Savior, Jesus, the perfect Son of God, took our place on the cross, took our sin on the cross. He died for everyone in here and everyone who is not, and He rose three days later. And then there is a great response where we trust Jesus. We repent of our sin. We place our faith in Jesus Christ for salvation by believing in Him, and then we live for Him. Will you today accept that great salvation through Jesus Christ? Believer, will you be that great example? Will we have great unity and great power and great grace and great care in our church? Because we have great people that step up and say, I am going to be the next Barnabas. We will have the mind of Christ and we will live like him. Let's pray. Father, thank you that you supply all the greats. We don't have to and can't and don't have to worry about supplying them ourselves. You have supplied them. Lord, may we respond to those greats, that great church. May we live in its shadow and follow in its example by having the same foundation, all of us, Jesus Christ. And may our hearts click as one as those metronomes did as we succumb to the foundation that we have been placed on. God, if there's someone here that's never experienced that, sal that great salvation, I pray that they will do it. And it is a great leap of faith to do so. But I pray that they would, in their hearts right now, trust Jesus Christ as their Savior. Lord, work on the hearts of the people in this place and anyone in the set, within the sound of my voice that they would turn to you or maybe return to you if it's a believer that wants to be the next Barnabas. God, thank you for your work in this place. As we sing and praise your name, we pray that you would do a mighty work among us. In Jesus' name, amen. So what's your decision? Unbeliever, do you need to trust Christ? Do you need to experience that great salvation? Believer, do you need to be that great example? Is this a prayer need in your life? Let's stand and let's sing and you do business with God this morning.